Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Thank you, Jeremy, and the team for leading us, and for Pastor Layton for uh, guiding us not just through announcements, which are just information things, but opportunities, and for leading us in prayer as well. I, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited for Kickoff Sunday. I, I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if there's just a different feeling that I seem to be having this year as we head into the fall, but I'm really excited. And when Layton mentioned ethnic food, I'm there. I told, uh, mentioned this morning, first service at Brian and uh, Tracy, you can cook one less hamburger or someone here wants it for mine because I'm just going to round the, the loop and I'm going to enjoy the ethnic food. Uh, if I take more than one sample, too bad, so sad. Okay, I'm taking it. Yeah. Anyways, my opportunity to say good morning. Uh, welcome to our Sunday worship service and of course, welcome to those who are watching uh, online. Uh, whether you're tuning in live right now or you watch it later in the week in a recorded uh, video. It's great to have you, and it's great to be able to worship together. Now, if you don't know me, my name is Cal, and I have the privilege of serving on the staff team here and my privilege to uh, journey with you through God's Word this morning. Now, last week was my first Sunday back after being away for about four months on a sabbatical leave, and this is my first Sunday speaking, so I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, it's been a while. But I'm hoping it's kind of like riding a bike. And I asked Leighton this morning, how many times did I fall off the bike in the first service? And he was gracious. He didn't say anything. So um, this morning, though, we conclude our summer series, uh, which we've titled X or 10. We have spent these past summer months looking closely at a set of verses which are likely very familiar to those within the church uh, setting or even those outside of the faith community. But perhaps this set of verses is either not that well understood or certainly maybe not that well followed. And what I'm referring to, of course, is the Ten Commandments. I found this little cartoon. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's from the Peanuts creator or someone just made it, but I think it makes a pretty good statement. There it is. I wonder what the world would look like if we lived by these simple yet profound commands. I wonder what our lives might look like if we lived by these commands. And I wonder how we, and by we I mean the church, us as a faith community, whether that be the, the universal or even right here what we call Ebenezer, or even in a smaller context that you might find yourself with other believers and non-believers, but I wonder what, how we, the church, might transform our, our homes, our schools, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our cities, and perhaps even beyond if we simply lived according to these Ten Commandments. Now, unfortunately, however, it seems that we, the world, our society, and, and even us, the church, have moved away from the supremacy of the Ten Commandments. At best, we've forgotten them, and at worst, we've ignored them or rejected them as being unimportant and irrelevant for our lives. They were written thousands of years ago to a different set of people, they're not for us today. They're too simplistic, or, or whatever your, your reasoning or rationale might be. But I would like to propose to you this morning about that nothing actually could be further from the truth. Even though they were given to us by God through Moses in written form approximately 3,500 years ago, 
By the way, did you know that Moses was actually the first person to download data from the cloud and onto a tablet? I'm glad you laughed because I thought it was a bit of a groaner, but that's okay. Even though they were given to us um, in written form about 3,500 years ago, the Ten Commandments have actually been truth for us and actually for all of creation since the beginning of time and are, relevant, uh, sorry, and are relevant and necessary for us uh, right from the beginning of, of creation with Adam and Eve and all the way to us today. Now, even though I haven't physically been here for the past several months, I've been praying that we as a church family would discover or rediscover the relevance and importance of the Ten Commandments. But more than that, that we would actually renew our excitement in knowing God in a new and a fresh way, as well as, as, and as, well as we live the Ten Commandments, we would know more of His ways and experience the joy and beauty of a close relationship with Him as He designed us to have. Now, the key to that has been shared by the various speakers throughout the summer months. Instead of seeing the Ten Commandments as an end goal and our obedience or disobedience to them as a final objective, and that includes the, the guilt that comes sometimes when we don't obey or the, the pride that comes when we do obey, instead of seeing the Ten Commandments as the end goal, I think what we need to do is see the Ten Commandments as one of the ways that, re, that God has revealed Himself to us. He's revealed His character and His ways to us. And it tells us more about who we are and how to align our lives in a way that would be pleasing to Him. And because God both created and designed the universe, our world, as well as each and every one of us, His character, His nature, and His ways is what determines what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad in, in a more simplistic way. God determines how things work and how they don't work. God determines what is best, also what is not so good, and even what is perhaps even evil. You know, if, you, if your car wasn't running the way it should, or it wasn't getting the gas mileage that you anticipated it should have, would you go to, uh, well, I don't know, would you come to me for advice on how to get it to do better? I would warn you against that. I wouldn't know the first place to start. If your phone was draining battery much, much, much quicker than, than it should, would you go to a, a construction worker, perhaps, and say, well, how do I get my phone to be a little more... No, of course you wouldn't. If your car was having problems, if your phone was having problems, the best source of how to get it working properly would be the ones who made it, the ones who created it, the ones who know it inside and out, who knows how it functions, who can troubleshoot and figure out what's wrong. And so it is with life. If you find yourself in a place where you're, you're experiencing things in life that you're not sure is, is what God wants you to go through, whether that be relationally or otherwise, if you're confused about your identity or, or other things, or you're not sure how to find those answers, look to the one who made you. And I know he'll provide you the answers you're looking for. So instead of looking at the Ten Commandments as, okay, here's the things i got to do, here's the things I, I'm not supposed to do, oh, shoot, I broke that commandment, hey, look, I, I, I obeyed that one, Ask these questions as you head into a command of any kind in the Scripture, but particularly these ten. First, what does this command or each command tell us about the nature and the character of, of God? What does this reveal to me about who God is, His ways? Then the second question you could ask is, what does each command reveal about us? 
You see, these commands are given to us by God because they, they confront something that is not right because of our sinful nature, the nature that was given to us when, with Adam and Eve's original sin. And so each of these commands now speak deeply into who we are. And so we need to ask that question. And then we need to consider, and this is a faith question, this is, this is something you need to accept by faith, and to ask the question, can we trust that God's ways are best? Can we believe in a God who is out for our good, who loves us enough to call us into a life with him and wants us to live what Jesus called the life of abundance? And if we can answer all those questions or begin to move along the path of those questions, then we can ask ourselves, are we willing to obey? Can we make that choice and to obey what it says? And I truly believe that if we ask these questions with an open heart and an open mind, and we have a willingness to realign our lives to the ways of God and these commands, we will see and experience God's goodness and faithfulness, and again, what Jesus says that he came to give us, a life of abundance in all areas of our life. And so if you want to experience and live a full and a meaningful, a purposeful and a satisfying life, I would suggest start by living according to these commands. Now this message, uh, sorry, this morning is our last message in this series. But because we haven't looked at the commands in order, we conclude with commandment number nine. So let me read it to us from Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. The ninth command is this. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It's actually interesting that this command comes up as the last in our series. I would actually argue that this command can be seen as a foundational command, or as we dig into this, there'll be a truth that's revealed that's foundational to all the commands, and the other, the other nine are founded. The first four would speak to God and our relationship uh, to Him and with Him, and these last six, which focuses on how we are to relate to one another, can all be drawn back to this command and actually the truth that I want to try to bring out for us this morning. Now, if you're like me, and you grew up in a church environment, or even if you're here or watching online, if you've never really grown up in a church, you've probably heard this command spoken of or taught as do not lie. Now, I'm not sure why we've kind of simplified it to do not lie. Maybe it's just because it's easier to remember, easier for uh, those who are, uh, are younger to be able to remember, you know, something a little bit easier. But it isn't what the command says. You see, if the command was do not lie, we could make a pretty short message. Okay, do not lie, so stop lying. Jeremy, you want to come up and lead us in a closing song? And maybe some of you are hoping for that, but of course, no, if you know me, you're not going to get that. But, I mean, it, it seems a little too simple if we reduce it or, or just make it do not lie. So, but I think here, there's a greater truth that is addressed in a specific form but we're going to look at kind of the, 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 what undergirds it as the important principle for us to understand. So we'll start with what the command actually is, and then we'll build from there. But before we get into this, let me ask you to do this. Picture this. You can close your eyes if you want. You don't need to, but you can close, uh, just picture this in your mind. What would a world look like if no one lied? I heard some giggles. Maybe that's because it's impossible. I get that, but this is part of what we're going to get into. What would a world look like if no one lied? If no one lied to you, 
if you never lied to anyone? It's, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, maybe for some of you it sounds a bit scary. 1997, Jim Carrey starred in the movie Liar, Liar. Full confession, I have not seen the movie. But I believe in the, in the movie, Jim Carrey plays a lawyer who is in the habit of lying. In fact, lying comes second nature to him. Now, this serves him very well in the context of him being a lawyer. He's a very successful lawyer. But his habitual lying ruins every relationship he has, including that with, uh, um, I don't know if it's a wife or ex-wife, but certainly the other character that is of note is his son. So one day, after another missed birthday party, the son is in, in front of his cake, and of course, as tradition goes, make a wish before you blow out the candles. And his wish is that his dad, Jim Carrey's character, wouldn't be able to lie for 24 hours. Well, as in the movie world goes, the wish comes true. And Jim Carrey is unable to lie for 24 hours. He tries, but he can't. And this inability to lie actually throws his life into complete chaos. He's no longer the successful lawyer. But I think as the movie wraps up, he finds restoration and healing in his relationships, interestingly enough. Now, that's all I really understand about the movie, but, but think about it. If there was no lying, if there was no deceit, no ulterior motives, no hidden agendas, wouldn't that make life not only a whole lot easier, but a whole lot pleasant, more pleasant, a lot more clear? As he businesses wouldn't have to install cameras or hire security guards. Teachers wouldn't have to supervise exams or sit students far enough away that they can't copy. You wouldn't need to have a proctor if you were writing an exam off-site. The justice system could be totally revamped, and the role of lawyers and judges would be totally redefined. And I haven't even yet mentioned the, the, the dynamics of relationships, whether that be between husbands and wives, or parents and children, extended family, friends, neighbors, and so on, how, how incredible they would be if no one lied. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, so let, let me kind of pull us back on track here. Let's first look at this ninth command in context and then consider the significance of what it means for us today. Once again, the command reads this way, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, when you hear that, if you kind of sense a legal context for this command, you would be correct. In Israel's time, there were many commands that had, if, if, if broken, serious punishment and consequences for breaking those commands, including death. Now, the legal system of that day required the testimony of at least two or three witnesses to establish guilt or innocence. There was no such thing as security cameras or dash cam footage. There was no such thing as forensics and DNA evidence. There was none of this high-tech stuff that we can use today in order to help determine guilt or innocence. It really came down to the testimony of witnesses. And often, as you will read in the Old Testament, it required a several witnesses. But here's the significance of that. A witness, then, if you were called to testify in that court, a witness literally had the life of an accused person in his or her very words. To lie in a courtroom could mean taking the life of someone who was innocent. But it could also mean setting free the, li uh, the life of someone who was guilty. 
So the Ten Commandments, and God gives these instructions, required that the Israelites spoke truthfully about others, especially in this courtroom setting, so as to ensure the foundation of justice remained rock-solid, unshakable, with, had integrity, and was above reproach. But this command goes further than just a courtroom setting or the legal system. As few of the population, even in Israel's time, and even few of us here, find ourselves in a courtroom setting. Few of us find ourselves called forward as a witness. And so we can't just say, well, this witness is for the courtroom. And so since I've never been called to be a witness, I can just, you know, kind of go on my merry way. No, it goes beyond that. It speaks to how we talk to and how we talk about each other, our neighbors, so to speak. Jen Wilkin wrote the book, Ten Words to Live By. And she says this about the ninth commandment. She says, it commands honesty in our words and actions, a commitment to integrity representing our neighbors in both their presence and their absence. Though you may never be called to testify in a court of law, the testimony you bear about your neighbors in everyday moments will shape your life and theirs for good or for ill. We are called to be truthful because God is a God of truth. And not only does God speak truth, God is truth truth. By God's very nature and character, He defines what is true and what is not. Have you ever thought about the fact that God cannot lie? Because He is by nature truth. And so what He says is true is what, what His nature and character determines for us then what is true. Now the importance of truth and speaking truthfully about our neighbors or those around us is, I would suggest, again, foundational to all the other commands. It is true that there is only one God. You shall have no other gods before me. And Pastor Layton mentioned it before he prayed that when we pray, we're not just praying to our God or our concept or idea of God. We're praying to the one true God who has revealed himself in Scripture and in Jesus Christ. Just as we are to not misuse the name of God, do not take the name of your Lord God in vain, we are not to misuse the name of others, those who have been created in the image of God. We cannot honor our parents or our elders, which Pastor Will spoke about last week, if we don't speak truthfully to them and about them. Some have summarized commands 6 through 8 as don't take your neighbor's life, your neighbor's wife, and your neighbor's stuff. And suppose this command undergirds those principles, but this command could also be don't take away your neighbor's good name or reputation. Truth is foundational to all of these commands. And here, we are called to speak truthfully to our neighbors and about our neighbors. Lying is really, I don't know, it's, it's almost the fundamental sin, isn't it? It was a lie of Satan that influenced and caused or, or led to the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And what did Adam and Eve do after they were confronted by God after their sin? They lied about it. Lying might be the first act of disobedience for infants and toddlers. We lie to get what we want. We lie to cover up something we don't want others to find out about. We lie to manipulate others. Lying is, is so deeply ingrained in our sinful nature. 
Now, I don't know about you, but this is deeply convicting to me. I try to hold truth-telling in, in high regard, but I'm not sure I can say I always honor my neighbor with my words and have the priority of the preservation of their good name. I know that when I'm upset with somebody, I know that sometimes in casual or even worse, careless conversation, I don't always have in mind the good name of my neighbor. And even if we're not directly lying to someone or about someone, we still disobey this command when we don't honor them with our speech. Jen Wilkin, again, going back to her book, gives us four ways which we might break this ninth command. But let me just speak briefly on, the first, on her first two, as I found this to be a very helpful starting point. First, probably most obvious, is when we speak untruthfully and negatively or mockingly or worse of others. Now, Wilkins calls this the sin of reviling. And actually, reviling is spoken of quite a bit throughout Scripture. Reviling is that speech uh, that comes from an attitude of the heart that Jesus speaks about and he warns us about in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have, heard it, uh, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is, which is one of the harshest terms of contempt in, the, in, the, in, the day, in Jesus' day, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, again, there's a much more significance to that than if we call someone a fool today. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's reviling. And it's the, perhaps the most obvious, but the first way that we, that we don't honor this command. Now, just an additional note here. This also includes what we post online on social media. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I try to stay off social media for a variety of reasons, or I try to limit what I put out on social media. But unfortunately, I see more and more posts of negativity at best, but reviling at worst, to the politicians that we don't agree with, the celebrities that make certain statements, those others in our lives who disagree with our opinion, or have a different perspective. Wilkin calls it, uh, that says that social media is just a new vehicle for an old sin. Now I would agree. And maybe there are some here who simply have to say, ooh, yeah, I got to think through that and maybe be a little more careful with what I post. Anyways, do you know who loves reviling? Satan. Satan, who is, among other names, called the accuser and the father of lies. And when we revile others, we actually follow Satan's way. We're not following Jesus. What goes on second, the way that we break this command, is when we give untrue and insincere and manipulative flattery. Now, should we encourage each other and speak words of praise? Absolutely. And I think we, we live in a world where we need more of that, more encouragement, more praise, more re not recognition in terms of pride, but acknowledgement maybe is a better word. But if reviling misrepresents someone by tearing them down, false or insincere or untruthful flattery misrepresents someone by building them up. 
It's very interesting what Scripture says about this. I, I didn't notice this, and I'm not, you know, but Proverbs 26 has some amazing words on this. And I, I said I was almost dumbfounded when I read this. But Proverbs 26 says this. Enemies disguise themselves with their lips, but in their hearts they harbor deceit. Though their speech is charming, do not believe them, for seven abominations fill their hearts. Their malice might, may be concealed by deception, but their wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Insincere, untruthful, manipulative flattery is another way we break this command. You see, we need to be truthful in our praise and genuine in our encouragement. And I would again agree, we need more of this. We need, to, people, uh, we need to be a people whose eyes see the good and acknowledge the good and recognize the good, but we cannot be fake or, or, or misleading or lying in, even in our flattery. The third and fourth ways that Wilkin talks about is the sin of silence and the sin of misattribution, which I won't talk about today. But the main point I'm trying to make through this is this. This, this command, is not, is a command is not just a command not to lie. There's much more to it than that. It's a command to at all times speak truthfully about our neighbors. Now notice, and it doesn't mean that we are to preserve our neighbor's reputation at the expense of truth. That would again be the false flattery category. If someone has a good name, then don't tear them down by lying about them. Don't accuse them of something that's not true. If someone has a less than desirable reputation, don't build them up by lying about them. Just let the truth be the truth. Now, I want to share with you three ways we can live this command out in our lives and become both individuals, but actually I'm going to move away from the individual idea and move into a community context that we as a church, how can we be a true community of truth? But before I do that, I want to point out another key area this command addresses, and I believe it's especially relevant and needed in our world today. If we go back to the way this command was presented, you'll remember that we said it was kind of in a legal context. In, in a courtroom setting. See, often before a witness takes a stand to give his or her testimony, they place their hand on a Bible and they swear that what they are going to say is the truth. And they add the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Like, we need to expand on that. Like, it, it's the truth, right? Okay? Now, this practice has historical roots. I wonder if it doesn't go back to this command and this idea that what we say to others or what we're about to say about somebody else or a situation is truthful. But the context is one of this. It's the context of justice. See, without truth, there is no true justice. The very foundation of justice is truth. And it seems that over the past several years, issues of justice have become more and more prevalent in our news, in our neighborhoods, and even in our own lives whether it's the Me Too movement from several years ago, or the Black Lives Matter, or Every Child Matters, whether it calls for justice in the, the, the calls for justice in the social realm, racial, economic, gender, political, and even historical realm, there's a growing cry for true justice. And I would argue that yes, it is absolutely necessary. But in order to have true justice, we have to have truth. We have to have truth. But the growing trend, and I would suggest the dangerous trend, 
is that we've shifted our standard of justice from an objective truth to a subjective, personal, and experiential truth. Everyone has their own truth, and so your truth is just as valid as someone else's. Things that are experienced differently. I understand that our different backgrounds, even our different ethnicities, our different life uh, journeys, our worldviews, our values, can cause us to interpret things differently. But we still have to get to the heart of what is fact and what is truth. A common expression that has been used for many years, actually, as an objection to the exclusive claims of Christianity and of Christ is, well, there is no absolute truth. You see, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And people are offended by that. that that's an absolute truth. That, well, no, there's no such thing as an absolute truth. See, what's true for you may not be true for me. That's really what they're trying to communicate. Let's do a little let me experiment here. Turn to somebody beside you. It doesn't matter who, just anybody. And one of you say this to another person. Say, there is no absolute truth. Go ahead. Okay? Good. Now, the other person, turn to the first person and say, is that absolutely true? Do you get the point I'm trying to make? Do it at home too if you're online, if there's somebody with you. You see, the statement, there is no absolute truth, is what we call a self-defeating or a self-refuting statement. You can't make the statement, there is no absolute truth, and at the same time claim that your statement is absolutely true. It, it doesn't work. It's illogical. It's not even cyclical. It, it, it can, cannot be. True justice, justice that I would again agree is much needed in the world today in every forum, can only begin with a foundation of that which is absolutely true. It cannot be subjectively based on what you think to be true or your experiences and so on and so forth. We have to get back to the heart of absolute truth. And so justice can only be found in the objective and absolute truth of God. So how do we live out this command in our lives then? How do we, and again, I want to go beyond not just as individuals, but importantly, we as the church, and again, I don't mean this larger gathering here or the earlier than one we're going to see in a few weeks uh, with the partner congregation, but how can you in your setting with other believers and non-believers, you're the church, you are the church in community, how can we live as people of truth? Three keys. First, we need to be relentless in our pursuit of truth. You know, we chase opinion a lot. We need to be relentless in our pursuit of truth. What I call we need to be truth seekers. See, if we don't know truth, we won't recognize nor can we confront lies. If we don't know truth, we can't speak or practice truth. And where is truth found? Two places I would point you to. God's Word and God's Son. Now, God's Son is revealed in God's Word, so maybe they're kind of the same thing. But look at God's Word and examine the life of Jesus Christ if you want to discover absolute truth. For decades now, Christian leaders have lamented the, in, the increase of biblical literacy, or the decline of, uh, sorry, the increase of biblical illiteracy, or in the same way to say the decline of biblical literacy. Did I do that right? Okay, thank you. The increase of biblical illiteracy. 
that more and more Christians and Christ followers simply do not know what the Bible says or what it teaches. Then they're influenced by all kinds of thoughts and opinions out there. But I want to add to that this morning and say there's been, uh, certainly over the last fewer years, a significant increase in what I would say is simply poor biblical interpretation. What we call progressive Christianity is one of those movements. It's bad understanding of the Bible. But there are many others. And I may be taking a chance here, but I would dare say that many pastors and preachers of some of the most popular, well-attended, and, church, and big church movements propagate messages that are really um, formed through bad biblical interpretation. Oh, sure, they often sound good, certainly feel good, but they're not truth, or they contradict the truth, or they're only based on a sliver of truth. One of the things I appreciate about Ebenezer is we allow Scripture to speak for itself, and sometimes that means dealing with the hard topics. Sometimes that means somebody up front here, Leighton usually disperses it to someone else. No. He handles some of the most difficult ones himself, I know. Anybody who's been here well know that Leighton has the courage and, I would say, the skill to handle difficult passages. But sometimes we have to say hard things because it's what God's Word teaches. We won't dance around that. We need to learn to dig deeply and mine for truth in God's Word, discover ultimate and absolute truth. And we also need to examine the life of Jesus and see in living flesh the revelation of the truth of God's Word. Jesus said of Himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Quick quiz here. Now, if you're newer to Ebenezer, don't feel bad. You don't have to, we don't get graded on this. But if you consider Ebenezer your church home, Turn to somebody right now, and what is Ebenezer's mission statement? Go. Not too loud. Other people are trying to talk amongst themselves, so not too loud. Now, I understand that these are words that we form to try our best to represent who we are and why we exist, what we stand for. And this is right now our iteration of our mission statement. And it's on the screen, I think, now. So let's say it together. If this is not necessarily your church home or you're newer here, this is, this is why we exist. This is our mission, okay? Say it together. Our mission is to point people to Jesus and help them know and follow Him. We point people to Jesus because we believe He is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, so when Jesus was encouraging those around Him who, who recognized who He was, that He was indeed the Son of God, He said this to His followers in John 8. If you hold to my teaching and you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Be relentless in your pursuit of truth as a truth seeker. Second, we need to be uncompromising in our practice of truth. And I call this that we need to be truth speakers. You see, too often the easy way out when dealing with a difficult or potentially offensive situation is to shy away from what we know to be true. Now, I'm not suggesting we need to pick fights with everybody just because we can wave our Bibles around and whack them over the head with it and say, this is what's true, you're all and be demeaning or self-righteous in our attitude. No. But we still need to learn what it means to be uncompromising in our speech and our practice of truth. See, we need to be uncompromising, but how we do it is the question I want to bring forward. How? 
Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4 that we are no longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. If I could sum it up in this context, I would say that we don't fall for lies because we're growing as people of truth. But he says this, instead, we should speak the truth in love. And we do so, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. And Paul continues along this line in, the letter, in his letter to the Colossians when he writes in Colossians 4, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Go throughout history. Truth has rarely been popular, if ever. And that is especially true in today's world. We live in a world today that does not want to address truth. Everything has become relative. And there will be times when our stand for truth will be difficult. There may be times where it's, there's going to be potential conflict or confrontation. But I believe that when we confront lives with truth in a gracious and a gentle way, we actually win others to Christ, to truth. Paul, as he gives final instructions to Timothy, a young pastor he left behind in Ephesus, says this to Timothy, he says, and, and knowing that Timothy is going to be confronted with uh, those who disagree with him or don't believe in this truth, Paul says to Timothy, his opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. You see, we don't compromise truth, but we lead people gently and with love and with grace and with patience to truth. Be uncompromising in your practice of truth as a truth speaker. And finally, we need to be unwavering in our desire to emanate truth. And to continue my rhyming theme, I realize this one's a little corny, not that great, but we need to be truth leakers. And what I mean by that is we, not just as individuals again, but we as smaller Christ-following communities, when we seek truth and when we speak truth, truth can't help but leak into the lives of those around us those we interact with, and those we have relationship with. And I would argue that this is really the essence of discipleship. You know, we try to use a lot of confusing and maybe roundabout terms for what is discipleship. I, I would boil it down to this, that discipleship is simply us and others, and as we guide others, as we move from untruth to truth. I think it, we can look at it that simply. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, whether you have been a Christian or a Christ follower for, for years and years and years, whether you're new to the faith, whether you're here just exploring faith and wondering what is this Christianity all about, the path of discipleship simply begins when God and, and others around you reveal to you what is untrue and then what is true. And it might start with something as simple as, does God exist? The truth is, yes, He does. But maybe you believe He doesn't. Does God actually love me and, and, and wants to be a part of my life? Maybe you don't think He is. He's just a cosmic genie who sets things in motion. No, he actually wants to be a part of you. That's the truth. Discipleship is really moving from untruth to truth in all areas of life and the things of God, in the gospel. Now, the image of light is often used in Scripture as a parallel for truth. And Jesus says to his disciples and to us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
And I'll personalize this part. It says, in the same way, let our light shine before others so they may see our good deeds, not for our sake or for our glory, but to, and then glorify the Father in heaven. You see, when we leak truth in love and grace and gentleness, that truth will always dispel the lies in the darkness. You've heard it said that light always dispels darkness. It never works the other way around, right? You can't, you can't out-darken a flashlight. But a flashlight always illuminates the room. I believe truth, when, in, when done in, in the way Jesus calls us to, the way God intends with love, grace, and gentleness, will always dispel the darkness. And our call is to be a people characterized by truth and allow that truth to be seen and known and experienced by others. Be unwavering in your desire to emanate truth as a truth leaker. Earlier, I asked you to picture in your mind what a world would look like if there was no lying. The ninth command, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, speaks directly to the practice that we must speak truthfully about others and not take away a neighbor's good name or reputation by speaking untruthfully about them. We need to learn to be truthful in how we speak of others, both in their presence and in their absence. But it's not just to stop lying about other people. It's not just to stop lying in a court situation. Because undergirding this command is the issue and the challenge and the call for us, God's people, His church, to be a people of truth, of God's absolute truth. We need to be truth seekers, truth speakers, and truth leakers. Now, I get it. The world as a whole probably won't adopt this principle. We'll never eliminate lying and so deeply ingrained in us as individuals, as people, as a society. The world may never choose to follow this way, but I would bet that we can slowly change the world if we build communities where truth reigns supreme. That as you and those that you gather with as in your neighborhoods, in your school and workplaces, especially with other believers, as we make it a priority to seek and to speak and to leak truth, we can make a difference. Uh, Jeremy and worship you guys come back up on stage. Get ready. In closing, let me just give each of us a reminder that the life of the Christ follower, the Christian, as well as the spiritual journey of what we call discipleship, was never meant to be done alone. It's not just an individual thing. God calls us to be in a community with others, and truth is best learned and discovered, lived and practiced and released in the context of community. I understand over the past two and a half years, there have been many times that we haven't been able to gather in this physical place with what we call our church family. We haven't been able to gather in our homes with others, your own immediate family, or, or you know, your own family, much less others in neighborhood or other friends. We've been limited in our ability to meet together, but we haven't stopped being the church. And for those of you who are watching online, we are very thankful and grateful that you've chosen to make us a part of your Sunday service, just as I'm grateful that each of you are here, that you've chosen to come here this Sunday morning. But, but watching a service online or even attending service here on a Sunday morning, it, it, it doesn't represent what God calls us to be as His church. It's one of the important practices, yes. But unfortunately for many of us, we've made this everything that we are as Christ followers, and it's not. 
So as we head into this fall, we've got kickoff Sunday coming up in a couple of weeks, can I encourage you, maybe even challenge you, if you haven't already, to make it a priority to re-engage or to engage in a, very, in a full way. I understand COVID isn't gone. Okay? I mean, there's talking about another swell perhaps coming up this fall, but we have different ways to put some safeguards in place, and I understand there's still some comfort issues, and, and I want to be respectful of that, but can I challenge you to re-engage? Re-engage with others in the Ebenezer family? That doesn't always have to be here. It could be in other contexts. Re-engage with your neighbors and your co-workers and your classmates and others in your life and begin to build a true biblical community where truth is, the, is one key identifying marker. Be a community that seeks and speaks and leaks truth. And as you do so, if you do so, I can almost guarantee that you'll move forward from wherever you are in your spiritual journey. And we'll grow to honor God and, and, and fulfill His mission together. Truth is what needs to mark us as His people. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that these, this is not just ink on a page. This isn't something interesting to read, but it actually reveals who You are, Your very heart, and it gives us revelation as to who we are and how much we need You and how much You desire for us to come into relationship and fellowship with You. Father, I pray that through this simple command not to give false testimony against our neighbors, we would seek to become people of truth, that truth would characterize everything we say and everything we do. And Father, as we do so, we trust that we will both glorify your name and your kingdom will grow. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.